You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who made the courageous decision to face his post-traumatic stress syndrome in light of very high-profile high civilian circumstances. We'll get to that coming up. But obviously, a few reminders. As we always tell you, first of all, if you're watching this on our YouTube channel, uh, we thank you very much for choosing to consume this podcast that way. Make sure you guys are following us on YouTube as well. You can check us out on Killcliff's YouTube channel uh, and down, download the Killcliff app. You can get us there as well or killcliff.com. Don't forget about all of our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. I'm going to keep beating you guys up about the Apple reviews. It does not take long. Leave us a short review. Give us five stars and help continue to grow this Hazard Ground community. Again, we need to get to over a thousand reviews. Uh, we're more than halfway there, but we need your help to continue to do it. So again, it does not have to be a lengthy review, although we love getting feedback from you guys. Uh, and we certainly like to share some of that feedback on our social media, on our Instagram and Facebook page. So uh, if we get some good ones, we'll share it. But Continuing to help grow that Apple Podcast Reviews will help grow this audience and we'll be able to tell some more of these great stories to as many people as possible. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You do all your normal Amazon shopping. And oh, by the way, it works on your smartphone. So if you go to hazardground.com on your smartphone, it'll redirect you to the app. All your credit card information is saved, so it's really user-friendly. But like I said, you do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. And then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations that have been featured here on the Hazard Ground. Uh, now on to this week's guest, an incredible story from a man who spent eight years in the United States Army and left the military as a captain. He had one deployment to Afghanistan. He is currently the president of the Veterans Community Project, which is a fantastic veterans organization uh, that does multiple things, including getting homes for veterans. But what makes his story so notable is that he was running for office he was running for the mayor of Kansas City and pulled out of the mayor's race with le less than a month to go to publicly announce that he was going to face his PTSD. And he is here to tell his story and continue that message for everybody. He is Jason Kander joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Jason, welcome, man, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Happy to be here. Thanks. Okay, so uh, for you, it started way back uh, around 9-11 when you first signed up for the Army. I mean, obviously, that was the impetus, but kind of give me some more of the background on the decision, you know, thoughts in your head. I mean, did you have anybody else who served ahead of time in your family that sort of drove you to that decision as well? Yeah, I mean, I didn't come from like a, a military family. I mean, I'm like a lot of people, you know, my grandfather was in World War II, my great-grandfather was in World War One. although I never knew my great grandfather. But uh, I guess to me growing up, it was really simple. It was like, when there's a war, uh, you don't have to have like a military career to go serve. There's a war and you're of age, you go and you serve and then you kind of go on with the rest of your life. Like that, it, that just sort of really made sense to me uh, when I was young. And I remember um, I, I was in a headspace where pre 9-11, I was in a headspace where like, I thought, you know, one day I'm going to I'm going to serve, but I don't know that I ever would have. I think if 9-11 had ever happened, there's about a 50 percent chance I would have like finished law school and like joined the JAG Corps Reserve or something. You know, you were going to be Daniel Caffey from A Few Good Men, right? <laughs> right. Well, like one week in a month, you know, like maybe I would have done that, but I don't know. Uh, and then 9-11 happened and it just 
changed the whole equation. It went from the maybe someday category in my mind to, well, I'm, you know, this makes sense to me. I'm going to do what my grandfather and my great grandfather did. There's a war going on. I'm going to go serve. And then, uh, you know, I'll go back to my life. And I didn't want to be, you know, I was about to go to law school, but I didn't, I didn't want to wait and become a JAG officer. I figured well, I'm going to go do something right now. So I went into ROTC with the objective of becoming a military intelligence officer. And, and that's what I did. So, um, that's what happened for me. And I remember at the time, it was funny because I made the decision to join. And then I very promptly tore my ACL playing pickup football. And uh, and all my professors who were all like Vietnam era were seeing me, uh, you know, going to get surgery and physical therapy to get into the army. And they're like, you are doing this wrong, dude. <laughs> like you've, you know, Particularly because the army was saying like, no, we can't take you without a waiver. And I'm going, well, I'm going to need to go get that waiver. Um, and so it was interesting, you know, people were, were saying things like, but you, you have this education and you have these opportunities. And, and that, I just remember that used to make me really mad because I just thought about how, I don't know, condescending and pretentious that was to, to feel like, because I, I don't know, because my family could send me to a nice school that therefore I, I didn't have the same obligation as other people. Uh, and so that, a lot of that just fueled me. And so um, I joined up. And then once I finished with intelligence school, uh, I, I volunteered and, uh, and got to Afghanistan um, in uh, the fall of 2006. You know, it's funny you talk about when people say you have all these opportunities. I, I've told the stories you know, dozens of times on the show. But um, when I was a senior in college, pre 9-11, of course, um, you know, and I was I had my ROTC scholarship. So I was graduating and going right into the military. And you know, the, the, uh, job fairs were coming around for all the seniors. And my friends would ask me, you know, you're going to the job fair. And I'm like, no. And they're like, why? And I'm like, cause I got to go in the army after. And they always said to me, why don't you get a real job? Yeah. You know, like, and again, in the pre nine 11 world, that was, it, the army was not what it, we, we knew it to be. Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny when you, if you go back and you watch the depiction of the military and movies, pre nine 11 and post nine, it's, oh, it's yeah. two completely different militaries. It's the difference between, I don't know, like stripes and any movie since nine 11. Right. right. I mean, stripes and like zero dark 30. Right. I mean, it's just two completely different militaries. And, you know, uh, like I'm from, I'm from Kansas city. And so by the time I was in college, I had guys I'd been in high school with guys I'd played little league with guys I'd played summer ball with who were in the army or the Marines. And I remember feeling like, they, you know, feeling a, a certain sense of inferiority, like in, in the sense that like they were doing something that I wasn't willing to do. I was aware of that. And so then when 9-11 happened, I, I just remember feeling like, well, I'm not going to go through the rest of my life knowing that there was a war and my country was in it and my country was attacked. And I just went ahead and went on as if nothing happened. Like I didn't, I didn't feel I could do that, but that was such a that was such a, a, a huge divide in the sense of like how I grew up and where I grew up versus where I was at the time. I was in Washington, D.C., going to American University, about to go to Georgetown for law school. So, you know, a lot of the people I was around, they came from a place where you went you went into the military if you couldn't get into college. Right. Like, why would you you know, it's not just like a choice among other choices to them. So that was an interesting you know, river to swim upstream against. 
uh, sort of in my friend group at the time. Yeah. And, and I mean, for us army guys, we, the old cadence was true, you know, got a letter in the mail, go to war or go to jail. Go to right. Jail, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, right. for the civilians listening, that was actually a cadence, a Jody call that, that we would have because literally sometimes that was the option for people, you know, with the military was seen as a way out. Now, how old were you? You said you were heading to law school. Does that mean you had already had your undergrad and everything was done? Yeah. So I was in my last year of, of undergrad when nine 11 happened. So I, when I got to Afghanistan, um, I was 25. Okay. Um, and, uh, right. Yeah. I was 25 when I got there. And, um, you know, the interesting thing about that perception is it unfortunately is also the perception in a lot of ways within the army, right? Like the idea that a lot of the, I think troops feel like, well, I'm here and, you know, uh, like, I don't know, there's sort of this reinforcing thing where sometimes they feel like, um, I, I don't know. I just depict it with a conversation I had. I remember I, I was on my way to Afghanistan and, and um, I was an individual augmentee. So I was being mm-hmm. sent. Um, yeah, I wasn't like sent with a unit. I was I was sent to fill a, a, a position. And and so I, I, I landed uh, in Qatar to get, you know, my equipment and stuff for a couple of days before going forward. And I remember there was um, a specialist in E4 driving me from spot to spot just so I could pick up my body armor and all that kind of stuff. And, and he was asking me about, you know, what I did back home and everything. Cause, uh, he knew I was a reservist and I was explaining, you know, I, I work at a law firm, I practice law and, and that kind of stuff. And he's like, wait a minute, you, you're a lawyer. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, and you're, you're going to Afghanistan as not a lawyer. I'm like, right. And he's like, and I just remember the conversation because he was like, sir, what are you, what are you doing here? And, and and, and I just I remember thinking the connection between like those professors and those people I, I had and this this E-Force perception of himself. Right. Like that it, it, it had affected his perception of what he did instead of seeing it the way I saw it, which is like a profession, a very important one. Um, they had made these folks who felt that way had made him feel that way about what he did. And I, and I just answered. I said, same thing you're doing. I'm serving my country. And I, and I remember he thought about it. He was like, who is sir? Like. But it always bothered me um, when I would talk to folks who, you know, sort of adopted that feeling as if, oh, well, I'm here because, you know, I wasn't doing something else. When the, the military we, we served in, that you still serve in, is um, it's a profession. I mean, it is full of people who are incredibly good at what they do. And in the vast majority of cases, if you put them up against the average person in a counterpart uh, spot in civilian life, the military person in their professionalism would just smoke them. And, um, and that's the reality of it that I learned and, and, and proud I got to be a part of. Yeah. And yet we still can't translate that military job into a civilian job that someone could easily walk into in a post-military career. But again, that's a clearly different discussion, but you, well, you, you, but, you alluded to it. So I had to bring it up. Yeah. But the thing is, is like we have a tendency to put that on the service member. But the truth is, that is also on the the folks um, who put that who who put that perception into our culture because we're going through the longest period in American history without some form of mandatory service, like consecutive generations. And what that means is the per, the people doing the interviewing, the people doing the hiring, they're unable to look at a, a military resume and understand, like it. You know, I think a lot of people think, particularly folks who haven't served think that it's a matter of being able to translate technical skills, like being able to look at an MOS and understand what job they can do in civilian life. But that's not it. It's just if you if 
the people hiring had ever served, they'd look at it and go, oh, okay, uh, this person was an E5, they deploy, got it. They've been in charge of like 20 people, millions of dollars in equipment, they can do any job at this place, <laughs> you know? And and that's that's the disconnect that we need to work on. All right, so aside from that, um, you deploy as an individual augmentee. So, I mean, this was something that you uh, clearly were, were gunning for. Um, were you... Were you doing that because you were worried that you weren't going to get an opportunity or were you, were you I mean, look, I, I went when my number was called. I, I Full disclosure, like I wasn't, you know, when war broke out right after 9-11, I'm like, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. And then you, you watch two, three years of war go on. You're like, eh, maybe I should pop the brakes a little bit. And, and you know, and I I never volunteered, but, you know, when the number, when my number was called, I, I didn't dispute it. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I'm just kind of curious in reference to what your thinking was as to why you needed to get downrange so quickly. Well, you know, so I, I went in after nine 11, I, I wanted to go in right after nine 11, but I had the knee injury and had to, had to work through that. So I wasn't able to actually go into the guard until uh, like, I think August of Oh three or September of Oh three. Like that's, that's when I, they were able to actually take me because they were able to give me the waiver for my knee and all that. And then uh, I got my commission in May of Oh five. And so by that time, you know, it had been going on for about, you know, what, three and a half years. And yeah, I guess in some sense, but not in a career sense, just like, you know, I was moved to do this because I, I, I wasn't moved to do it because I wanted to just wear the uniform and go to drill weekends. Right. Like right. I was moved to do it um, because I wanted to go and do at that point what I was trained to do. I mean, and I think that's pretty common, right? Like just understanding. And I'm sure you felt the same thing. Like I want to go do what I'm trained to do. Um, and I felt really strongly, you know, maybe naively and idealistically, I felt like, well, if I do my job well, maybe more people get home safe. And I have no idea if I achieved that. We never really know. Right. But but that's what 25 year old, you know, uh, thinking he's bulletproof. Jason was thinking. And so while I was in intelligence school, I was like trying to volunteer for deployments. And what I kept being told was, well, you don't have any experience. We want somebody with experience. And I was like. How exactly am I to get uh, said experience? And finally, what happened was, is I was able to hook up with uh, U.S. Central Command and uh, and they sent me over. What was strange about that for me was that um, that ended up meaning that I went on like a sitcom rotation, which was four months. And so then, you know, I always and, and so for me, like, you know, it was a pretty intense four months and I'm proud of what I did over there. But it was also something I had to reckon with for a decade afterwards of having these symptoms, having these things, and knowing guys who went multiple times, knowing guys who went for a year, year and a half at a time, and just never feeling like I had any right to claim the mantle of PTSD, despite my really obvious and retrospect PTSD symptoms. All right, we'll get to that in a moment. I do want to talk about when you get downrange in Afghanistan, you know, where did you go? What was your mission? Um, what sure. were your expectations going in? Did you have any? I, I, it's almost hard and you probably know what I mean. It's almost hard to remember what my expectations were. Um, don't die. Right? <laughs> Do I? Don't die. That was my expectation. Don't, yeah, don't get dead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that was the goal. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I, I remember um, I, I got there and the thing about being an intelligence officer is going through Intel training they would familiarize us with all this stuff and then go, but you'll never do that. Not until you get this kind of training or that kind of training. Cause that's that, you know, training and doctor and command world where everything works the way it's supposed to. And they tell you that that's how it's going to be. And then I got there and I remember like my first 
convoy to, you know, I got into Bagram and then I, we, I was going to, I was convoying down to um, Kabul, the Camp Agers. And I, I, as far as expectations, I remember I was expecting like armored Humvees and the stuff that we had trained with and everything. And what pulled up were uh, unarmored Mitsubishi Pajeros. And they were like, this is what you're taking. And that was my first dose of like, this ain't going to be what you thought it was going to be or what the army told you it was going to be. And so that's, you know, in that four months, I, on average, was outside the wire for several hours a day, like four or five days a week. I was in an armored vehicle maybe five times. Uh, it was mostly in, in the Pajeros. That's what we drove around in, in the intelligence uh, division, I guess, because they're lower profile and everything. But um, I, I got to I got to Eggers and um, I reported to the J2, to the director of intelligence. Uh, and I was, he had a bunch of Navy folks and everything. And, and I went, and I was a second Lieutenant and, uh, and I was replacing an 05, I was replacing a Lieutenant Colonel as a second Lieutenant. And they had this new position they'd created. He, he gave me a choice. He said, look, I, there's two positions I got to fill. One is an intelligence analyst on the night shift. Basically you'll come in, you'll work for 12 hours, you'll read reports and write stuff up. And the other is a little different. Uh, it, it was a position where you would analyze, but you would also be collecting intelligence on um, basically bad guys who were pretending to be good guys in the Afghan government. It was an internal stability uh, collection position where it was pretty much they needed to know of the people they were working with in the Afghan military and government. How corrupt were they? In what way were they corrupt and who were they tied to? And the only way to do that was to have somebody start going out and meeting with people. Um, people listening to this will be familiar with the different uh, disciplines of intelligence, right? You've got signals intelligence, which is SIGINT. You've got human intelligence, which is HUMANT. Uh, so you got all the ints. Um, my boss, uh, the colonel, referred to what uh, we did as thugint. Uh, it was like we went out and we built relationships with thugs to get information on other thugs. And so, you know, uh, some of my time I was in street clothes um, and I was making it up as I went along. I, I would go out, usually just me and my translator um, in a Pajero unarmored um, and meet with folks. And, you know, it was just a, a really regular uh, drumbeat of knowing where the exits were, knowing how many guys there are between me and the exit, how many between me and my vehicle, like, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so uh, it was not, as far as expectations, it was not the conventional combat that I expected. I, you know, I, I also commanded convoys and that kind of thing, but I never got blown up and I, and I never had a bullet would whiz by my ear. So the whole time I was telling myself like, this is nothing. Uh, but in truth, you know, I was spending my time just trying not to get kidnapped. And, um, and that has its own effect as it turns yeah. out. By the way, uh, blown up and bullet by your head, way overrated experience. Way <laughs> yeah, overrated. well, glad to know. So you didn't, you didn't miss much. Um, and thankfully the bullets missed me. So it all works out. Although yeah. the bomb didn't, uh, I got hit by a couple of those. That said, um, you know, was there a part that you can remember at the beginning of your deployment or as you start to do these sort of daily interactions in civilian clothes and, and you're starting to recognize the depth at which, you know, and, and you were there in 05, right? 05, 06? 06, 07. Okay. So yeah. we had had beheadings at this point in time. Oh, um, yeah. I was very aware of Yeah. That. Well, and again, I'll never forget. So just an anecdote story. I was attached to the SF when I got there, um, and you get all these these plain army briefings from the regular army guys. And then when I got on on ground in the SF compound, I got a whole different set of briefings from the SF guys. Um, and the 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 uh, you know uh, 
survive, evade, you know, resist and escape, you know, the seer briefing yeah, yeah. that you that you get that the SF gives you. Um, they kept it very short. Uh, and he basically said, OK, uh, if you get captured, uh, don't. And that was the end of the briefing. OK. And, and, yeah. and he looked at me and he said, I'll be damned if I have my wife see my fucking head get cut off on TV and a discussion. He goes, I'll, I'll, they will kill me before that happens. And that was the end of the brief. I said, OK, noted. Got it. So if you get captured, don't just die trying to not get captured was, was essentially what they were saying. But that 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 mentality, what I'm driving at, you know, it, it's funny and you laugh and you think about it when you're in sort of a safe area of a, of a tactical operations center, you know, and you can laugh about it. But when you're actually in that scenario and you're in downtown Baghdad, in your case, in Afghanistan, and you realize that's a real thing and you're like, yeah, uh, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders. So. What I was asking was, is that was there a, a moment we started to realize that, man, I'm breaking under all this pressure. Like it, it's getting too much every single day. No, not while I was there, um, because it, in fact, while I was there, it, I thought that what I was doing was no big deal. And frankly, I thought and I thought what a privilege it is to be able to do this, because when you you know, there's a certain feeling you have when you put on a uniform. For the first time, you know, you're, you know, you're a part of something. And then you have this incredible pride when you put it on each time. And then when you're in a combat zone and you don't have to wear a uniform, it's a completely different feeling. Now you go from, oh, wow, I am a soldier to, holy shit, I think I might be a cowboy. And, uh, and that is exhilarating at, at a whole other level. Right. Um, and, you know, there's also that thing, like I can remember being out uh, in Jalalabad, out east, and uh, actually being with a, a, a PSYOP team, and we had been doing stuff all day, and we're all in street clothes, and we go into uh, the chow hall at Jalalabad Airfield, and I remember going through there, and none of us have shaved or anything, and I remember the way, you know, the folks were looking at us. I remember thinking, these folks are looking at us like, these dudes are the cowboys. And I remember thinking they're right. And I can't believe I get to do this. And the reason I think that I didn't understand the level of pressure and the effect that it was having on me is because of that really necessary form of brainwashing that the army does for all of us, which is the moment you get off the bus, they go, they basically start to explain to you and ground into you that whatever you're doing is no big deal. And other people are doing more and in fact, most people are doing more. It's much tougher than what you're doing. Um, and so just get over it. And, you know, I knew I knew two or three guys who were also going into meetings without any backup with people of questionable allegiances who were much more heavily armed in places where nobody knew they were or where they were. I knew others doing that. So to me, what I was doing must not have been a big deal. And I was it was explained to me in intelligence school that I wasn't going to do any real stuff. Right. Um and so it, I didn't, I didn't get that at all. And, and if anything, the first, I mean, don't get me wrong. I understood there were moments where I was like, yeah, this is wild. Like nobody is going to believe this when I get back. Right. Or like, <laughs> this is like a movie, you know, like when you're pulling into a, a spot and the guy driving, you know, who you're rolling with on this, on this meet, uh, turns to you and is like, Hey, by the way, at this place, don't call me John. My name at this place is that you're like, okay, this is wild. Right. But I didn't have any sense for the effect it had. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I was scared. I had moments where I was like, you know, 
I mean, you know, I don't have to explain that. You understand the, the adrenaline rush. But I, I, it wasn't until the, the bird I was in landed in Qatar uh, and I woke up, uh, you know, on my way out of Afghanistan, I woke up and I had an unstoppable twitch in my eyelid and it didn't go away for six months. And that was like, and then, you know, the nightmare started when I got home and, the, and they were pretty much always about getting kidnapped. And because I was aware of that same thing, I knew, I knew that there was no, no getting kidnapped as an American soldier, particularly by the way, as a Jew, who's an American. So like, there was no getting kidnapped and then getting home. That wasn't happening. Um, and I had the same thought. I'm not going to have my family uh, see my head get cut off on YouTube. Not going to happen. Um, and so in my dreams, I you know, I'd get taken over and over again. And so that's when I started to understand, even without acknowledging it to myself, oh, this had an effect on me. Were there any close calls that you can think of? I mean, there was, did, did a mission stand out where you're, you can remember that, you know, your heart was racing more than another, that you felt like something bad was going to happen? I mean, anything come to mind? Yeah. Um, I actually, I wrote about it a little in, uh, I sanitized it probably <laughs> because at the time I wasn't really, um, copying to post-traumatic stress, uh, but in my, in my book, um, but it, so I had developed a pretty good contact in the Afghan attorney general a guy named, uh, uh, Abdul Sabit. And he was a great contact for a few reasons, one of which was he spoke fluent English, which was nice. Uh, and another was he had no discernible incentive to help anybody kidnap me, which really put him up the power rankings in my book. Um, and he was doing this anti-corruption campaign. And I had been really studying him even back in Tampa when I was at CENTCOM before I deployed. And so I developed a real contact out of him, um, kind of just used the fact that I was a lawyer back home. You know, all lawyers just like to talk about being, it just turns out they're all the same. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and the thing was, he was also quite the target, um, of assassination. And, and I later learned that he was, he was involved in plenty of corruption himself. Um, and in fact, I learned it rather abru abruptly in this meeting, cause there was this guy, uh, who we had been, um, looking into pretty heavily as a, as a very corrupt, um, member of the Afghan border police, uh, a guy named general Haji Zahir. He was a, a border police general uh, out at the border. Um, and so I, I had these regular meets with Sabit, the attorney general, and there were a couple of guys, uh, from like Pentagon, uh, a Pentagon agency type guys is all, you know, that world of intelligence. Um, who wanted to come along with me and, and meet Sabit. And so we went and I remember we, we pull up in, uh, into his little compound and there were more like security goons there than usual. In fact, there were some Afghan border police goons there, which didn't make any sense, but there they were, we weren't near the border. And also he, that was not his usual detail. So they come out with AKs at the low ready and they're barking some stuff at us. And the translator for the Pentagon guys, um, and there, there were, it was three guys total, including the um, translator who I was with. And the, the translator says uh, he they're telling us to leave our weapons in the vehicle. And I'm, I remember thinking I may be a second lieutenant, but I'm not an idiot. Like, I wouldn't want these these guys to think that I'm that green. So, you know, I put my rifle in there and I put my body armor in there because, you know, it was generally pretty rude to go into a meeting with your body armor on, you know kind of made you seem like you didn't trust the person you were talking to much, but I obviously, I took but you didn't trust the person you were talking to for the record. <laughs> I, I didn't, 
I didn't, but if they knew that, they wouldn't talk. Right. Um, and so, uh, and you're right, I did not. Um, but uh, so I took my nine mil and I took it into my uh, waistband and we go in. And and so we go and we sit there and after a minute or two, Sabit is like, oh, Jason, there's somebody I really want you to meet, a friend of mine who's here. And this guy comes in and he looks strikingly familiar. And he has that look of a guy who like, some, you know, in Afghanistan, you don't need to see their uniform or their clothes to know if they have money, right? Like he was well-groomed, nice teeth. I was like, I know this guy. Know, who is this guy? So then Sabit said, this is my friend, General Haji Zahir. Now this dude is like, you know, running drugs at the border, uh, playing footsie with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, not be, not out of ideolo- ideology, just out of basic corruption and patronage. And he was known for, I mean, he's a killer. He was known for putting heads on stakes to intimidate uh, other warlords and that kind of thing. And now we're going to have tea with him. And he knew that we were investigating him. And we knew that he knew that, you know, all that. And and then the goons come in and they stand behind him and they're at the low ready. And he just starts to get, over the course of this meeting, really, really animated and really heated. And and there came a point where my heart's like pounding out of my chest. And was I'm he thinking, speaking like Farsi or whatever? Like he wasn't speaking English when you say he got animated? Yeah, he was he was speaking Dari, Dari through the okay. translator, but I could also tell and I knew I knew about him, and I could tell by the way he was reacting that he knew everything we were saying before it was translated. Right. Uh, he was just he was doing this sort of a power move, you know. And um and he so he's getting very animated talking about being very critical of what's going on at the border, being very frustrated with the coalition. And, and I'm running through my mind, like, okay, what are the different scenarios where Sabit would bring this guy in? They go back together into all of that. What's their deal? Is this a setup? And I'm starting to think, okay, these guys have AKs. We have pistols. If they're going first, we're toast. And I'm starting to think about which guy I'm taking first. And what do I do if one of the other one of the um, other guys I'm with goes first? And I'm like getting to the point where I'm I'm about to just take one of these dudes out, and I'm thinking, am I allowed to do this? Like they haven't shot first, I don't even know. And and right about then is when he transitions into talking smack on all these other warlords in his part of Afghanistan, and how if we're gonna if we're gonna crack down on the narco trade, we got to arrest these guys and these guys. Now we knew who all these guys were, but we acted like, oh yeah, we got to write all these names down. It be finally, I realized his main objective wasn't to like try and get us to do what he wanted or kidnap us. Like I didn't think at that point, it was mostly to try and get us to arrest his competition in the drug trade. So I just kind of let him think we were doing that, and we get out of there. Don't shoot anybody. Nobody shoots at us. I get to the vehicle. And we open up the vehicle and I uh, watch the other guys reach in and grab all their pistols. They had left all their weapons in the vehicle. And I realized I was the only one of us who was armed. And I like about puked because I was like, I almost just shot first and would would have been wiped us all out. You know, so that was one that was kind of hairy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, with the benefit of hindsight, and looking back on it, like a moment like that, it, it, do you look at that as like a seminal moment as far as where things start to compound for me? Like, can you tell with the the ability to look back on it now that uh, it's moments like that that really are, are the ones that were the cause of your PTSD? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely um, that and a few other things, you know, and a few other um, 
days uh, are were the stuff that I worked on in therapy, you know, with prolonged exposure therapy, um, telling those stories over and over again and then recording them and then listening to them and all that to really make it so those memories didn't have a hold on me anymore. And working through that stuff is how I've been able to, uh, you know, I don't want to say overcome, but manage or, or substantially reduce hypervigilance, being able to have my back to a door, you know, all that stuff. And also, um, the nightmares are a lot less frequent. Um, it was, it was wild how the nightmares evolved. Like when I first got back, they were very predictable. They were just like sequels. You know, it was like, I was back in the same spot in Jalabat or Kabul or wherever, but it, it ended differently. And then after a while, I was able to convince myself I must be getting better, even though the nightmares were getting worse. But I convinced myself because I even wrote in my book that oftentimes the venue for the nightmare, the environs, were no longer Afghanistan. It would be my house or it would be a meeting here in, in the United States. And it, I wouldn't be in the army at the time, but somebody would try to take me. Or sometimes it was just I'd be in a meeting and I'd look and I'd literally see something out of place. I'd just be like in a business meeting and I'd look over and like see a toaster and, and be Im- immediately it would induce panic. That toaster is not supposed to be there. And then I would have sleep, sleep paralysis. So my, um, my brain would wake up, my body wouldn't, and I couldn't breathe. And so that was terrible. But I told myself, well, it's not PTSD because it's not even about the military. And it wasn't until I was in therapy when I found out actually that's very much PTSD. And that's a really dangerous thing because when your nightmares evolve that way, and now they're, they're, about your modern environs, but they're 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 um, based on the exact same memories. Well, now it, it feeds your hypervigilance because if you're having nightmares every night where you're in your modern environs and you're being kidnapped, whether it's by the Taliban or anybody else, now everywhere you go, you feel like the threat is real because every night it plays out in the place where you are. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember your original question. I I mean, I'm just one of the things that interested me. You talked about therapy, how you had to tell these stories and then record them and then hear them back again. Um, I I guess one, I'd like an example of a story if you can remember one. But two, uh, I I want to know, you know, when you hear those things back, um, what's it like? I I mean, Mm -hmm. take it from somebody in the civilian world as a radio host. Like I listen to my own show often to understand and try to get better. So it's always a little weird to hear your own voice and what you do because you think you knew exactly what you just said, but you don't know exactly what you just said. So I know I threw a lot at you there right there, but no, no, start with the therapy one. Well, start with an an example of one of the stories that you would tell first. Um, well, so, you know, that story that I just Mm -hmm. told, uh, is an example or, you know, um, a meeting I had in, in Jalalabad um, where it just nothing really happened, um, but it's just the whole time. You're just, and it was it, it was particularly the meetings that I took after that meeting, you know, where I was much more aware now of the threat and, and that kind of thing. Or, you know, being in Jalalabad um, with a group of uh, Afghan soldiers that or Afghan recruits that um, we were basically administering a test to. I was with a, a PSYOP team like an entrance exam uh, to, and we were completely exposed. Nobody was supposed to know we were there. And, uh, you know, um, gunfire broke out really close to us. We didn't know whether it was coming our way or not. And just stuff like that, right? Like when just feeling really exposed and alone, um, that's the kind of stuff. Or sometimes it was like going into a building when there was no way back out. There was no, there was no good route of egress behind me. I was by myself and I'm meeting with people who I know are bad guys. Um, you know, you go into those meetings and you're like, 
this is, this is my job and this is what I'm going to do and I'm dedicated to it. But, you know, I'm really aware that the chance this ends poorly is, is probably very high. And, uh, and so that kind of stuff, I would talk through those and they, sometimes they, they would sound very mundane when I would, well, the truth is I never told them to people before that, right? Like as a politician, I had three or four stories that I told because people expected to hear stories and they were either highly sanitized or just the easy, funny stuff that people could deal with, you know, nobody. And then I, I learned, as I'm sure you have, when people like civilians would be like, like, like I would be on the road for the campaign, like staying in New York at a fundraiser or something. I might stay over at somebody's house after the event and they'd be like, tell me some stories. And you kind of tell them one of the ones you're used to. And like, okay. And then like, sometimes maybe you've had a couple of glasses of wine and you're like, I'll see. I'll, I'll, okay. And you get into it and then you start to feel the adrenaline. You don't feel comfortable. But then also now they've just heard you tell a story about the time that, you know, you thought the driver was kidnapping you. Um, and so you put a pistol to his head and started screaming at him and, you know, and all this stuff. And, and now they look at you differently. Now you're a different person to them. And, and so I learned like a lot of veterans do pretty quick that I've always, you know, you always hear people say, well, you know, my dad, he didn't talk about it much. And we've always assumed that's because they didn't like to talk about it. And that's kind of true. But it's also that they just didn't think you wanted to hear about it because you tell those stories. Nor would you understand? Yeah. No, you're not going to understand. It's going to change your opinion of me. I'm just going to hold it back. And so as a result, I had never really told those stories. So when I was telling them in therapy, um, I was initially I was re-experiencing, you know, my heart was racing, I was sweating and that kind of stuff. And then the more times I told them and my therapist what he would do is he would just act like he every time i did it he would just act like he never heard it and then i recorded on my phone and then my homework between uh, weekly sessions was to i couldn't multitask i couldn't treat it like a podcast i had to close my eyes put in the headphones and listen to myself tell the story and i had to do it again and every time i did it would unearth additional parts of it and eventually i was just able to listen to it or tell it without feeling anything and i remember uh in fact at one point saying to my therapist um hey you know i'm kind of bored of this one can we move on to a different story and he laughed and he said yeah boredom is the goal if we're at boredom then it doesn't have a hold on you anymore right. and yes let's move on to a new story that's crazy it um, makes it makes a ton of sense but it's crazy yeah there's so much of what i learned in therapy it, so much of therapy is just like like my great uncle said to me once when i was starting therapy he said you know therapy is a master's degree you get in yourself and that's what it was. It was like going to grad school. You know, it was like half just learning about the brain and half learning about my brain. And then all this stuff where I'd learn it and go, yeah, that makes sense. And I never would have gotten there on my own. I never would have figured that out. Yeah, I heard you say in another interview that you never felt comfortable with the term PTSD because you didn't feel like almost you had earned it. You know, mm -hmm. you have all your fingers, you have all your limbs. You know, you, you, you don't have any bomb scars or bullet scars or anything else. Um, and, and while I certainly can can sympathize with that, because, again, I, I've never been officially diagnosed with PTSD because I've never went to a doctor for it. But I know what the symptoms are. And I, I have had certainly plenty of of, uh, of episodes that, that have, you know, caused me to, to understand the nature of what, what it is. Uh, but that said, I, I agree with you in a sense where it's like, you know, I... I I didn't want to be a pariah. Like I didn't want to be somebody who um, it's not even a question of looked at differently. Like it's almost like a, 
just figure it out, man. You know, like just figure it out. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my friends who are missing limbs. They, they got problems. You don't have problems. Figure it out. So when when you hear somebody else, you know, say that, I mean, I see you smiling, but I'm also wondering, you know, was that part of the hardest thing for you to overcome? Is that sort of mentality that you, you couldn't have this because you didn't deserve to have it? It was the hardest part of it. It's why I it's it's why it got so bad for me. You know, I, I waited uh, 10 or 11 years to get treatment. And by the time I did, I mean, it was it was out of control. By the time I, I got treatment, it was because I was having suicidal thoughts. And had I when I first got home and started to feel these symptoms, had I just said, you know what? I should address this and gone and done it would have been a completely different situation. Right. But I was so dead set on the idea that I hadn't earned it. Um, and and there, there's a few things about that. One, you know, I, I referenced earlier the, the necessary brainwashing that the military does. Right. I say necessary because in order for me to keep going into those meetings, in order for you to keep going out after you get blown up or shot at for us to keep doing that stuff, which is by the way, like, completely against the survival instinct, right? <laughs> it's completely counter to what we have learned, but it's not just that we're trained and it's not just that we like love our brothers and sisters next to us. We do it because we're convinced that it must not be any big deal because we've been told it's no big deal compared to what other people are doing. And that's important. It's necessary because otherwise we wouldn't have anybody go do this stuff. And this stuff is important. The problem is when we're done doing that stuff, when we come home, nobody flips that switch off. Nobody sits down and gets through to us and said, hey, that shit was actually pretty crazy. And you're going to have some problems because all that stuff we were telling you about, it's no big deal. We were lying to you because we had to, to get you to do the job. Nobody does that, or at least didn't for me. And and so that was a big part of it. I, I like a lot of other uh, vets. And that's the thing. I realized a buddy said to me, a buddy who had already been through treatment, uh, and was kind of my mentor in the process, said to me, he said, you know, man, somewhere there's a World War II vet who was at D-Day, who was in the first wave, sitting in a VFW hall being like, man, it's no big deal. I was in the back of the landing craft. He's like, no matter who you are, there's somebody who did more. And what I learned in therapy was that doesn't matter at all because my brain doesn't know what your brain experienced. And so ranking my trauma against yours or that World War II vets or anybody else's, is nothing but a giant waste of time. It, for me, it was a waste of 10 years where I could have been more present with my family, where I could have been healthier, where I could have been doing so many things, where I could have been getting a decent, nice rest at least once or twice, right? But um, but I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't address it. Um, and, and then the last part of this is that we have now, at this point in this country, done a very good job of getting across the message that it is not weak to go and get help, that it's strong. I mean, we've said that so much that I don't think you can, I mean, you may find veterans who disagree, but you will not find a veteran who has not had that communicated to them. Right. And most agree with it. Um, what we have not done well is get across to people that you can get better. Because when you think about the depictions of PTSD, either fiction or nonfiction, whether you're talking about the news or the big screen, TV, whatever, there's all... Uh, you can think of almost none that are like, they got better. There's plenty of depictions of a guy who, you know, kills his wife or robs a bank or develops a drug habit or becomes, you know, or, or commits suicide. We hear about that every day. And what that does is, yeah, we've convinced people that it's not weak to go get help. It's strong. But what we haven't made clear is that you can actually get better. The PTSD is not a terminal diagnosis. 
that my depression was a symptom of my PTSD. And it was a symptom that came on after years of dealing with PTSD. And then my suicidal thoughts, that was a symptom of being depressed and stricken with PTSD for a long time. And now I'm in this stage of life of post-traumatic growth. And I literally got to a point where I was in therapy for a few months and was starting to do a lot better. And I asked my therapist, I said, why did I get better? Did I even really have PTSD? And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, it seems like nobody gets better. If I got better and if I'm getting better, it must not have really been PTSD. And he was like, this is the problem. Nobody understands that you can get better. We have no depictions of it. And he pulled out all these VA studies and was like, look, the vast majority of people who commit to the program and do the homework and show up for their appointments, they get better, which is to say the symptoms no longer disrupt their lives. And I literally didn't know that. Um, and so now, like, I'm writing a second book because, you know, I feel like I have an important role to play now in, you know, setting an example of, you know, you you can get better. So that I, I think more people will get help if they realize there's something on the other side. You know, in talking, one of the things that, that has sort of resonated with me, um, do your... Do your flashbacks or do your, did your nightmares, like, was it harder to talk about them sometimes in the actual events itself? Like that, so I I have had multiple incidents since, you know, uh, my deployments um, that, that I remember so vividly. And the flashbacks and the reaction and what happened and the circumstances around me almost haunt me more than anything that actually happened overseas does does that make sense yeah because um it's that fight or flight thing right that you were in a, in a in a weird sense you were kind of ready for it then you know when it happened your brain didn't process it then because of the survival instinct right like like for me when you know that day where i got so pissed that those guys didn't bring their pistols into that meeting because like who the hell goes anywhere in afghanistan unarmed um but anyway and I was super mad and I almost puked and I, all that stuff. By the time I got back to my Iraq at the end of that, uh, that day, I slept fine. Like that was over. Right. Cause there was a job to do the next day. And it was just, I was just doing the job. I was in it. It wasn't until I got home that, and it wasn't even like that, that exact memory played out as intrusive in my mind at, at night in my subconscious. What it was, was just versions, you know, all sorts of different versions of it. And what I learned in therapy was that the reason that was happening, it was so counterintuitive. I even wrote in my first book that I had solved this problem, which I said in my book was not PTSD. Uh, it's the only part of the book I wish I could rewrite, right? Um, it, it, I'd said, oh, I solved it, but I don't watch war movies. Uh, and I, and I'm, you know, and that kind of thing. Well, what I didn't realize is that's this thing called avoidance. And so it was very counterintuitive. My therapist was like, no, you got to talk about this stuff. you got to watch these movies. you got to do these things um, because the reason you're having these nightmares is because your brain wants to deal with this stuff. And you've got your guard up all day. You are distracting yourself with your work. You are doing all these things so that you're not thinking about it. And then when you go to sleep, your guard is down and it all rushes in and your brain is like, we are dealing with this shit now. And so now, like if I have uh, nightmares for a few nights, you know, I'll go watch Band of Brothers. I'll go watch, you know, I'll go watch something that I wouldn't have watched back then. Because the thing is, 
probably like you, I actually, it's like junk food. I enjoy watching that stuff, right? It's, I joined the military. I loved, I understand that world. I like that stuff. It has an effect on me right after. I have to come down a little bit, but I let myself process it and then I sleep great. And so, um, yeah, in many ways, the war with myself after being in the war was much harder. Like when I think about my deployment to Afghanistan, there are, you know, there's triggers, there's things that affect my body. I have, I have sometimes still physical reactions, but when I think back on like my memories of being there and being with everybody, maybe it's strange. I don't think so. To me, those are happy times. I was fully utilized I knew exactly what I was doing and why I was doing it. I felt important. I felt like what I did mattered. And I never felt like anything was mundane. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I say it repeatedly, you know, and I, and I don't joke around. I, I look at people and say something. Combat was easier than certain things in the civilian world, right? Because it, yeah. the focus is linear. Stay alive. Keep your people alive and do the job. Really simple stuff. No outside distractions, yep. no emotions involved. It's very business. And so you can you can lock in on that for an extended period of time and not really get off track. You know, it's when your spouse is nagging the hell out of you and your kids are screaming. And, oh, by the way, you know, your car just broke down and, and uh, you know, somebody passes away and, and like and, and life begins to suck life out of you. You don't have that problem. Again, it, when you're downrange, it, it, it's much easier to, uh, to, to, to compartmentalize all that stuff into one singular thought. You even get up every day and put on the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't even have to pick anything out. Right. And, and it's, and my, at one point in therapy, my, my therapist put up on the, we he used the whiteboard a lot. Like he like almost like taught class, you know, and on the whiteboard he put on one side, he put Afghanistan and on the other side he put here. And he drew a line down the middle and he was like, okay, list a bunch of the stuff, like the emotions that you need, um, to, you know, be here. And, you know, I, you know, uh, empathy, it's you know, all that stuff to, just to be a good human being here. Um, and then he was like, all right, list the stuff that you need in order to be over there. Right. And it's like a little bit of anger, you know, uh, alertness, all that stuff. Right. And he's like, okay. And he goes to the Afghanistan side and he said, this stuff is so you survive, right? And I'm like, yeah, he goes, and it worked, right? Like your brain learned that this worked. You survived because you did this and only this. I'm like, yeah, he goes, what if you switched them? What if you took all this stuff from the here side and you, that's how you were emotionally while you're over there, what would happen? I was like, I'd have, I'd have got my head chopped off. <laughs> Very simple. And he's like, right. He said, your brain understood that that was simpler. And it's like, to me, I always compare it. It's like, it's like having only needing like two clubs in your golf bag, right? It's like over there, like you need your driver and your seven iron. Like you're not putting at all, you know? And over here, like now you're on this course, you need all these clubs and you don't even know how to use some of them. And frankly, you had, by the time you come back, you, you didn't think you were going to use them ever again. So like, you don't even remember how they may not even be in your bag anymore. And, and that's, that's why like, there's a still a part of me and, and I'm sure a part of you that's like, I just want to go back there. It's simple. I get, I understand that world. Yeah. You know, uh, by the way, great analogy. Um, and uh, going back to it, this thought came back to me, going back to when you talked about how, you know, ranking or comparing your trauma versus somebody else's part of that happens in the military because everything is ranked 
and yeah. listed and put in order. We have a rank structure. We know who's above whom, right? We have wear badges and awards on our chest, on our regular uniform, airborne, ranger, you know, pathfinder, yeah. whatever. You can see it. It is ingrained in your head to compare yourself versus your peers and superiors. If you want to be here and you are here, this is the things you do to get there. Like that is part of our culture in a rank-based organization. So you're never going to, and it's so ingrained in us. We we even translate it to the civilian world. Like we, that's how we think. Even in the civilian world, I got to do one, two, three, four, five to do this, and I'm good because that's what you know we are taught and how how to do things. Quote by the numbers. Not only are we taught that, we are also taught that if you act as if you uh, have any of those uh, accomplishments or achievements or you know whatever that you don't. Well, that's stolen valor. And that's like, you know, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this probably serves. So I don't even have to explain that. Like, there's nothing worse. Right. right? Like that. That's that's as bad as it is, as it gets. It, you know, so to me, I felt like if I hadn't earned post-traumatic stress with with the brand of combat that I saw, but I but I said I had post-traumatic stress or admitted it to myself, then to me, that was absolutely stolen valor. And that was something I was never going to do. And it, it, when I had my very first intake at the VA, my second intake, actually, it was with a clinical social worker. And she was just asking me the standard questions and about my deployment and all that stuff. And, and I was sitting there re-experiencing as I talked about it. And finally, she looks at me and you know, I, I went and got a drink of water, calmed down, came back. And she's like, why did you think that what you did wasn't combat? And I was like, I explained, you know, well, the same stuff I said to you a few minutes ago. And, and she's like, let me get this straight. Or she asked me, she said, what are your friends who were blown up or, or were shot at uh, on a regular basis? What do they say about what you did? And I, and I said, well, they usually say they could never have done what I did, but I assume they're just being nice. And she's like, look, what they did absolutely is combat, absolutely is, can be traumatic. She was like, but, and I had to have somebody explain it to me this way, you know, hear it this way. She said, you were in the most dangerous place on the planet. You were pretty much by yourself, maybe you and a translator, for hours at a time. Nobody knew where you were, so nobody was coming to help you, and you knew that. And um, you were meeting with some of the most dangerous people on the planet. Uh, and she's like, uh, and it was for really long periods of time. And I was like, well, yeah, when you put it that way, it sounds kind of traumatic. And she, she said, she goes, and your friends who were in that situation, like <laughs> they were with their friends. It was still traumatic, but like they weren't alone. And that usually lasted a few minutes. She was like, so I, she was like, I'm not telling you what you did is more traumatic, but there are ways in which each is worse, you know? And then she said, she goes, and by the way, they probably didn't come home and get into firefights. You went home and went to meetings like <laughs> for your work. And, uh, and that was the first time that I was able to really kind of stop ranking my trauma right. against everybody else's and realize it was the first time I, I was willing to refer to myself as a combat veteran, uh, as a combat veteran. And it was, it was really, um, I don't know, validating in a way. I want to give the audience some context uh, behind all this and, and how you got here, because uh, in 2012, you were elected to public office on uh, the Missouri House of Representatives, and then you went on to be a secretary of state in Missouri, um, and you have this, this blossoming political career, um, and you were running for mayor at the time uh, and, in a race that you were widely expected to win, 
Um, and with a month to go, you decide what? Yeah. I mean, I think it was a few months to go, but yeah, I mean, I, I, um, yeah. And in fact, on top of that, you know, I was running for mayor, which was a surprise to everybody because I was really a few months before that I was running for president. I mean, I was in Iowa and New Hampshire and, um, and it, and it was going pretty well. And I knew that I was starting to get to a point where I was unraveling and, and the stuff was getting harder and harder to deal with. And the, and the politicking and the career stuff was no longer working as a self-medication. And so what I said to myself, I still wouldn't admit to myself it was PTSD, but I said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to the VA to try and figure out what's going on with me. And I'm going to run for mayor because I thought, well, maybe that'll fill the hole inside me if I, instead of trying to become president, if I, if I serve my neighbors, cause I knew, you know, I was pretty well known and I knew that I'd probably be elected. So I was like, I didn't see it as even running for mayor. I just thought I'm going to become mayor. I'm going to serve my neighbors and that's going to fill me up and give me that sense of purpose that I've been missing. Um, or that was no longer working as well for me as it used to. And I didn't keep my promise to myself to go to the VA. Um, I was worried about the public perception, you know, here I was, I still wanted to run for president at some point, maybe soon. And, you know, I was thinking like, how can you run for commander in chief? People know that like you can't sleep through the night and all that stuff. And, um, and so I was, yeah, I was running for mayor. Objectively it was going really well. Um, my uh, podcast was like number one and my book was New York times bestseller. And we sold $25,000 worth of t-shirts on the first day of my mayoral campaign. I mean, like people talk about, you know, you want to have name recognition when you run for office. I had a hundred percent pretty much face recognition. I mean, it was ridiculous and I should have been enjoying it quite a lot, but I was miserable because I was really spiraling and um, it got uh, bad enough that uh, I got scared and I called um, the VA crisis line and I called thinking, you know, still, I was thinking like, my stuff's not legit. So I was thinking like they were going to be like, please make room on this line for somebody else. So I called like almost apologetically. I was scared enough of myself that I called and my wife and I, she was the only one who knew I was having suicidal thoughts and we decided I should call. And I just remember being just struck, like, like getting hit by lightning by the realization based on the sound of the woman's voice in the other end of the line, that my call was no different than any other call she'd had the whole shift. And she asked me if I'd had suicidal thoughts and she was the first person other than my wife that I had said yes about that too. And that was it. That like opened the whole thing up. And I realized like I have PTSD and this whole thing I've been doing where I counseling other people who I thought had it and telling them it's not a weakness. You need to go get help. I was denying it to myself. And I remember realizing like, Holy shit, I got hurt over there, you know, 10 years later, like realizing that. And, um, uh, and that was that. And I was like, I'm not going to risk being one of the 22 a day. And, uh, and that's when I decided I'm going to step back from everything, not going to be the mayor. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so I went through therapy and um, I also got really involved with an organization that helped me get in to weekly therapy at the VA veterans community project um, and started hanging around there and really volunteering until finally they were getting ready. They they were trying to go nationwide because people wanted them to, and they weren't sure exactly how to do it. And I had built a national organization before. So finally, after I'd been doing well in therapy and was showing up a lot more, um, they said, Hey, you want to just come here and help us become national? And I jumped at it. So that's how I became president of Veterans Community Project. And you, you know, over you the became last president, year, like I, you had set out to be. 
Yeah, yeah, just like it, man. <laughs> just hey, not I got that president. <laughs> I got to throw out the first pitch at the Royals game the other day, so because go. of this job. So that's very presidential. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's the best civilian job I've ever had. I'm I'm really enjoying it. And uh, on top of that, like in the last year, I've gotten back into politics, not as a candidate, because that's just not what I want to do with my life right now. But, um, you know, I was a surrogate for the Biden campaign. I I, uh, I have a I still have my podcast, Majority 54, and it still does pretty well. And um, so it's been great, man. I've gotten to do the things I want to do instead of the things I feel I have to do. What was the conversation with your staff, your campaign staff, when you uh, decided to pull out? How did that go? Uh, that sucked. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, like I had one conversation and it was with one of my closest friends who was also my campaign uh, guy, a guy named May Breakove. Um, and he had just been there with me from the beginning of mostly the beginning of my political career. He he had run my secretary of state's race. He had been my chief of staff at secretary of state. He had run my Senate race. He had. Um, he was going to run my presidential campaign and then he was, um, you know, helping run my mayoral. And, and so I brought him over to the house. And we talked about it. And, and, uh, and then it unfortunately fell to him to tell all of these people. And because it wasn't just my mayoral campaign at that point, it was also this organization we had started, Let America Vote, which was a nationwide organization. And so there and, and this was after I had already had to tell all these folks that I wasn't going to run for president. I was going to run for mayor instead, which they were very disappointed in. And some of them were upset with me. They got over it, but some of them were upset with me, especially because I couldn't tell them the real reason. Cause I couldn't even admit it to myself. I said like, Oh, I don't think we can raise the money when we clearly were, we could have raised the money. And, um, so that it was all, it was a, it was a shitty time. Is there anything about that whole transaction that you wish you had done different? I wish I had done it 10 years earlier. <laughs> um, I did, no, I mean, I mean the, the, the pulling out of the race and the way you talk to your staff about, like, you know, does any of that still bother you? Not the decision to pull out, because obviously you're healthy and you're, and you're, you're flourishing. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the way you executed that decision. You know, I'd like to say that I wish I had had the conversations personally, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't in a place to do it. Um, I just, you know, at that point, I was so broken um that uh it it wasn't gonna happen it wasn't gonna work and you know abe had always done that kind of thing for me and 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 it was the biggest thing probably i'd ever asked of him so um what would uh jason kander now tell jason kander uh in cutter getting his gear about his deployment Uh, And would there be anything you would tell him to prepare for how to sort of avoid the PTSD he was going to walk into? Hmm, That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't think so, because honestly, if if I had known the effect that that stuff would have had on me or if I had gone into it with that. That knowledge of what might happen. Um, I might've proceeded differently. I might not have closed myself off emotionally in a way where I might've got hurt. I might've got kidnapped. I might not have been, you know, careful enough. Um, one thing though, is I do think I wish that I had had a real education on PTSD before deploying. And I, and I wish more soldiers had it. 
Um, because, you know, what we do is, you know, I know we do better briefings now than we did then. I mean, the full briefing I got on PTSD was they brought in a chaplain to intelligence school and he happened to mention it. And he was like, PTSD is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, which solid description, but it's not exactly a PTSD briefing. And if, and I just think if I, if I knew either like right after I deployed or whenever, if I knew just some of the basic stuff that I went on to learn from my therapist that weren't even particular to me, just basic principles of what PTSD is and how the brain works and how it reacts, not only would I have been able to notice it in myself earlier and go go and address it and not let it become so malignant as I did, I would have been able to sense it in the people around me much sooner and would have been able to look out for them. So I guess if I could change anything, I just wish I would have known more of what that stuff looks like when it happens so that when I got home, I could have taken it more seriously. Here's what I would, would have told myself in reference just to PTSD. Um, and even though it's not acceptable, learn to take a knee. You don't have to go on every mission. I was good at telling my other guys that we got into firefights and I mandated, you're not going out next one. You're taking a break. Yeah. You're not going out on the next one. You need a week off, go sit down, just go decompress. But I never did that for myself because I was the guy yeah. in charge, right? And and, and mm-hmm. it was my show to run. So I give my guys breaks. I don't take breaks. But especially knowing what we know now about it, we don't, in our organization, we don't allow people to take knees enough. You know, mm-hmm. in sports all the time, you, go sit down, take a breather, take right. a breather, right? You know, and, and we don't do that enough. And that's the one thing I would tell myself is that you don't have to be running point on every single mission to still be an effective combat individual. I, I think that's a really solid um, takeaway. Um, in my case, I, I wouldn't have taken that advice. Be, I don't think I would have because, taken it either. But <laughs> Yeah. But, but in my case, it wouldn't have been out of toughness or anything like that. It was like I, I arrived already feeling guilty about the fact that I knew that I had only been given a short deployment. And, and I was like determined – I'm going to do every damn thing I can in the next four months mm-hmm. to know that I made enough of a contribution. And of course, what happened, I still never felt like I made enough of a contribution. I, and I, probably there's no point at which you feel that way. So, in, in well, fact, that's not true. I do feel that way now. But right. Without, you know, in, in fact, really 27 uh, tw- year old me would have given 40 year old me the finger and told me to bleep off with that advice. Right. And I would have went out on every mission just to spite myself like that. That's, that's, that's what would have happened. That's why we send. That's why we send people who still think they're bulletproof. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, frankly, like you and I would be less effective <laughs> now than we would have been then because we would, you know. Now, would we be better at many aspects of the job? Yes, but you can't send an entire army of forty-year-olds uh, because we are like aware of like children who we have in our <laughs> lives who are you know things like that. You, it just. You're not going to kick in as many doors, right? Because you're like, hey, man, you know, um, I got responsibilities other than this. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we send that's why we send young people, you know? Yeah. Well, or to be capricious and not give a rip anymore, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I could imagine an army of 40-year-olds going in there. Dude, I got to take a dump. Hold on a second. <laughs> it, it, was, dude, it, would, it would just smell like, like uh, icy hot all the time. That's all it would smell like. Uh, all right. Um, so – you pull out of the race uh, and you end up getting the, the, the Veterans Community Project. Um, and that's where you end up working. And so 
This organization does a variety of different things for veterans. Uh, why don't you elaborate on a little bit more for everybody? Sure. So uh, Veterans Community Project was started by a group of combat veterans, not including myself at the time, a few years ago in Kansas City, initially to address the fact that there were so many folks who were falling through the cracks of the system. Uh, and they initially just created a walk-in operation where um, any anybody, any veteran could come in, regardless of the nature of their service, regardless of the nature of their discharge, didn't matter, and qualify for 100% of the services. And the services were all and still come from uh, community members who just want to do more than stand up and applaud somebody on the jumbotron at a ball game. Like whether you are a mental health professional or you cut hair or you're a mechanic or a dentist, you can come to VCP veterans community project and you can do what you do for veterans. And so we're able to, you know, not worry about navigating the system and just get people help right away. But then they did that. It was very effective. They were treating thousands of folks in this, in Kansas city. And then they realized there were a bunch of homeless veterans and they couldn't understand why so many of them wouldn't take advantage of existing homelessness services. So they did something nobody had ever done. They went out and they actually asked them and they found out that it was a couple of things. One, a lot of them didn't feel safe in a group living environment, like a homeless shelter, uh, for obvious reasons, right? If you, if you've been in the service or especially if you've been deployed, you're not going to sleep around strangers, you know, particularly when it's like all your worldly possessions are with you because you're homeless. Um, and then the other, issue was that a lot of these programs that existed had all sorts of requirements like completely sober living right away or you're going to be here for 60 days and then you're supposed to move on and they were all going like that ain't going to work for me you know i know i got a lot of work to do on myself so they came up with uh, a really unique solution which was a village of tiny houses uh, for homeless veterans with uh, wraparound full-on case management services and with no limit on how long you needed to be there before you could transition into permanent housing. And, you know, the average transitional housing program for the homeless in this country um, has, if it has a 35 to 40% rate of successfully transitioning people into a permanent living situation, that's considered really good. At VCP, our rate is 93%. Wow. Um, it's, a, it's a revolutionary system. And, um, and so now we're building these campuses, the villages, the outreach centers, the community centers, the, which, you know, the outreach center being the walk-in operation, we're building these, uh, around the country. That's amazing. Um, I, I, I love the fact that there is an organ like the success is really what, what gets me, um, tons of veterans organizations out there. And I never question their integrity or their motives or their want to do good, but there are better ones than others that, that are more effective than others at, at getting from point A to point B. Um, and I'm sure you know that. Yeah, I mean, I do. I'm really proud to be a part of it. I It's been two years now that I've been with BCP. And, you know, as a politician, I toured hundreds of nonprofits. Um, and I toured BCP six weeks before I dropped out of the mayoral race. And I remember instantly being just knocked over by the vibe, which I would describe as like if a forward operating base in Afghanistan and a startup in Silicon Valley had a baby. Like it was innovative, but had that also that gritty, you know, military culture to it. And I remember coming home that night. It was like out of 99 days that I campaigned for mayor, it was the one really good one. And I came home and I said to my wife, I wish I could just quit everything I'm doing and go work there. But it was a thing I said, but it didn't feel realistic, right? Like in my mind, like, well, I'm a politician, I'm in this campaign. But six weeks later, I went to the VA. They told me, well, you know, if you do get into weekly therapy here, it's going to be months. And but the day before I made the announcement that like made international news or whatever, I 
called the guys at VCP and told them I'd been to the VA and this is what they told me. And they're like, well, come on down. So six weeks after getting the VIP, you're going to be mayor to her. I went through the front doors of the outreach center, like thousands of other vets, and they're the ones who expedited my paperwork and got me into weekly therapy a week later. So I'm a big believer in it. Wow. Amazing. Uh, I want to ask you a very loaded question because this is fun for me. Uh, sure. Let's see. Uh, let's find out how much of a politician you are. Uh, the pullout of Afghanistan. Uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions. Uh, where where yeah. do you sit on it? Uh, I have lots of emotions um, because I recognize and have recognized for a few years, in my opinion, it needs to happen. I mean, if you were to go back and write the American story from the beginning, you wouldn't write Afghanistan as the longest war in American history. You just, you just wouldn't. And, you know, we initially went there to do a couple of things, right. To, to, um, to make sure we denied a sanctuary for Al Qaeda and, and that it wasn't a jumping off point for international terrorism and ideally to depose Osama bin Laden. Well, we did those things and I get, you know, getting to the emotional part, like, I intellectually understand that this is the right thing to do. And yet it's really hard for me because um, I, I don't like the way it's portrayed, the way it's simplified as like it's people are acting as if it in Iraq were the same war. People, you know, I, like it, there's no nuance now in the history of it. Uh, people are comparing it to Vietnam. And I'm like, hey, there was mission creep and there were all sorts of problems with it. But we we did the shit that we were supposed to do. Right. And, and on top of that, it's just hard because I understand what's going to happen. I understand that it's the right thing to do, but I also understand that it means that there's a lot of people who I worked with people who were brave enough to be a part of the Afghan government and, uh, and a part of the Afghan military who, if they're still alive, may not survive this next phase and their family may not survive it. And, um, that's really upsetting. Like when, President Biden made the announcement. I was glad intellectually that he did objectively. I knew it was the right thing. And I also scheduled an appointment with my VA therapist to talk about it because it had me really irritable and really yeah. upset because, uh, you know, and so I don't know. That, that's my own. I, I was highly own. irritated when the White House press secretary last week said for a war we didn't win militarily. Oh, bullshit. Like, see, this is what the nuance is. Okay. Strategically, there's an argument we didn't win it. Operationally, there's an argument we didn't win it. Tactically and militarily, we kicked every, everybody's ass in every battle we got into. Like, that's the nuance yeah. for me that bothers me. And I find it insulting that there wasn't a lot of clarity made in that because the military people were, were who you were talking about. I hear you, but um, do you remember the question that Jen was asked that she was responding to? Vaguely. It was it was will there be a mission accomplished moment? Right. It was will you be having a celebration? Right. She said there will be no mission accomplished moment, referencing the George yeah. Bush deal. Right. And and so in that sense, I understand um the answer, right? Because I don't like I I I am good with us like at some point having parades or whatever, but like coming out when we know what's going to happen with us coming out, we, oh, yeah. we, yes, I what I just said. I stand by, like we accomplished those missions, but we accomplished those like a decade ago. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and so I do think it's important that we acknowledge that the mission creep was a mistake that, that, that deciding we were going to turn, you know, Afghanistan into like a democracy and we, you know, that was a mistake. And, um, 
I just feel it would be to me it would be disingenuous to celebrate the pullout, but I think that shouldn't and maybe there would be better phrasing for her to use, but I hope what she was trying to get across, I believe what she was trying to get across was that that would be like cheap, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I a hundred percent agree. Look, I was there for the closeout in Iraq in 2011 and, okay, and yeah. I can tell you, you know, there were oh sixes and oh sevens with, with like a cat with claws in the rug, you know, trying to stay as long as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was described to me in a way, and I'm not a sailor by any stretch of the imagination, but the term hull velocity is what they used. And the hull of a boat depends on, you know, will di- dictate how fast it can go. We reached hull velocity in Iraq about 2008, 2009. Nothing was going to get any better. And we hung around yeah, for an extra yeah. two years, only with diminishing returns, um, mm-hmm. you know, to get nowhere. And, and again, going back five years later after the first time I'd saw it, I, I could tell. Man, it's gotten worse. It didn't get better. It got worse. I could see it on the yeah. ground with my own two eyes. So I was well aware of that. And I was in favor of, of the pullout. And, and again, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Let's get out of Afghanistan. I just, the messaging to me is what has bothered me all along. Uh, and even the, yeah. the Pentagon press secretary talked about how, you know, uh, you know the, the Afghan Air Force and this, that, and the other. I mean, it, you know, you know what the one thing that they don't have, and you would know this, the intelligence is everything, and they don't have the intelligence capabilities we do. And oh, by the way, even if they did, if you can't action them immediately, it's useless. Like, there's a reason why when you call 911, you get a response in three minutes. If you wait 30 minutes to call 911, guess what? Bad shit happens. So if you yeah. can't action the intelligence immediately, you're wasting your time. And the idea that we're still going to support them financially is even more maddening to me because now we're just giving money away. Like, I'd rather us be there if we're going to be you spend money on this thing. Let us be there to spend money. Don't give them money that you know you're going to lose with. That's a bad hand well, you're playing. Yeah, I mean, I, let me unpack some of that. I'll just say that um, <laughs> I, I get I get what you're saying. What I think the the thing that no like whether it's the Soviets or us or anybody who's tried to hold that ground, right? What what everybody learns the hard way is that. Over there, they have a different concept of time than we do, right? And so when you look at the statement, a war, now battles, yes, but a war that was not won militarily, it is very hard to make the argument that we defeated the Taliban on the battlefield. When the Taliban right now, as we leave, is actively taking the north and taking all these places where they had not previously been. Now, yes, like tactically, sure. But at the end of the day, like, the Taliban is going to have a shitload more power, possibly all the power that we did not, not intend for them to have. So if that's the case, I, I, you know, I think it's a factual statement, but that doesn't, but that doesn't mean that, and she didn't say this. So, you know, which is good. It doesn't mean that it wasn't important. There are, there are young girls who got educated in the last 20 years. There are, you know, lives that were saved. Unfortunately, there were a lot of lives lost, but there were good things um, that came out of it, even though mission grief, I think is a mistake. Um, so yeah, but this whole, the point of all this is you and I are able to have this conversation at a level of depth that recognizes that treating this like it's Vietnam from the beginning, which is how a lot of the media wants to remember it now, because it's simple. It's just wrong. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And even treating it like Iraq, you know, uh, I mean, they're com- two completely different wars with two mm. extremely different populations. Yep. It to me that stuff bothers me because that's how we make these mistakes again. 
is when we don't understand what happened at all, you know? Yeah. And, and to your point, the, the, you know, as you said earlier, the nuance is gone of all this and, and that presents right. some problems and we tend to broad stroke things uh, and that presents some more problems. And uh, look, you know, uh, there, there'll be people writing, uh, you know, uh, papers on this in, the, in their war college class and their, you know, combined general staff right. college courses, um, you know, about all this one way or another, whether it was good, bad or indifferent. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, what, what what'll always stay with me is that they're both Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, uh, the, the reasons why we went don't matter. The reasons why we left don't matter. What matters is the people who walked on that turf, who bled on that turf, who died on that turf, um, that nothing that they did is ever undersold, um, in any political sense. That, that's what, yeah. that's what hung me up the militarily piece, because again, you know, I, when I hear militarily, I'm looking at it in the context of battle space, in, in, in pure battle. And, and from that standpoint, uh, we, we always held superiority. We always, we always got more bad guys than they got of us. Um, and and uh, maybe that's too simplistic in the way I look at it. But it's just – it's not for me. It's for, 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 the, for the others. Yeah. You and I have a different context, right? I mean you got to remember like somebody who wasn't there and didn't – you know. It's hard, it's hard to describe, right? Like, how do you describe a not winning, but not, you know what I mean? Like but not how, losing. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very hard to describe. And, you know, I, I sympathize with anybody who has to stand in front of the entire world and describe it. It's, it's, it's very difficult to do. And, um, and also I know Jen and I just like her and I, and, and I think she's very well-intentioned. And, and I will tell you on the other side of that is like, what we've had in the past is like, no, we're just going to keep, we're going to stay there because we're winning when we weren't, you know, like we weren't accomplishing our overall objective. And, you know, I just think back to the, it got very politicized. And so it's unfortunate, but I think back to what John Kerry said to Congress, a young John Kerry after Vietnam, he said, how do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? Now I'm not saying Afghanistan was a mistake in the first place, but at some point us being there was not wise. And how do you ask somebody to die for that? Look, you know, it's, and it's that's, the one thing our military is bad at is leaving. Yeah, we've been bad at it since, since the dawn of time. We know we how to go in there. Shit, and we blow it up. Yep, and that's that's why we have to have responsible civilian leaders to to make those calls. So, let me ask you one more question uh, politically. It doesn't have to get too in depth, but um, sure. the military has become a bit of a political prop. Used in yeah. many different ways, um, some blatantly egregious, others, you know, that uh, uh, there might be some necessity to it. Um, for years, we've tried to bridge the civil-military divide, and I feel like the pendulum has swung so far back in the other direction that now it's, it's, you're getting negative returns on it. Where do you sit on the military being used as a political prop, uh, and how do we get away from that? I cannot stand I, I think of it as the yellow ribbon car magnet thing you know you remember after 9-11 you'd see all those yellow ribbon yep. magnets that said i support the troops and i was like you supported a manufacturer who makes yellow ribbon magnets um <laughs> you know you didn't do shit um it's why i love the place where i work like our motto literally is be more than thankful be involved right like just saying thank you know it's nice nice thanks for saying thanks mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually do anything mm -hmm. and 
Um, it makes you feel better than it does us. A hundred percent. And it's for you, not for us. Oh, look what I just did. I was so nice of me, you know, like, okay. Um, it's not that like, I don't like it when people say thanks. It's just like, I'm not like, okay, we created some good. I mean, just thank you. It's nice. Nice of you to say, but, um, but, uh, there was a point in my political career when I decided it was like, I think in 2012, I decided I would not do any more events like that. I went to an event and I, you know, it was like a photo op and it was with a bunch of veterans. It was a round table, you know, and and the politician who put it together was well-meaning and all that. But I remember just feeling just gross about it. And, and I said to Abe, my chief of staff, my campaign manager at the time, I was like, I'm never doing one of those again. I will go and I will do any veterans event as long as it's meaningful. If it's about an organization that's doing something, but if it is just showing up and, and the point of the event is me taking pictures of veterans and reminding people that I served, I'm never doing that again. And, um, you know, I didn't, you know, I mean, like I probably did events where I had actual conversations that were meaningful and said things that are meaningful, but I didn't do that because I continue to be really irritated at politicians who think that the most important thing that they can do politically with veterans is put pictures of them on their website. Um, because that is useless. Like, and also it's counterproductive because like you said, with the thank you for your service thing, it makes people believe that you did something. I mean, there was at one point like a, a bill that was something like the fallen heroes act or something. And I was like, Oh, interesting. And I looked it up, you know what it was? It was a bill in, in the, in uh, Congress to make it so that any uh, family member of a first responder who died or a military person who died could, could get a flag flown over the Capitol. And they had the fucking audacity to call that the fallen heroes act. And it, that's the kind of, sorry, I can get really exercised about this. No, that's I'm the, with you. Yeah, this stuff is useless. And it's like, I, I just, I, I, in my 2016 campaign, there was a controversy around the fact that I, I said that I had no use for um, veterans being used as props. And they tried to come at me with like, these veterans, they are not props. They are human beings and you should respect them. And that, that shit didn't wash at all. Cause I was like, yeah, remember I am a veteran. I actually get to say this whenever I want, and you're using them as props. And um, yeah, so I have pretty strong feelings about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you 100%. I've railed on this on my radio show. I've railed on it on, on social media. Uh, I it, ban every single military appreciation night. Get rid of it, okay? Uh, detach the military from every professional sports league. Don't want them anywhere near any of it. Um, because again, all that one, it, it you're stealing goodwill, um, and, and not only that, you're actually buying goodwill because there's a sponsor attached to all that crap. And so oh, it's great when you, when you get a six figure check to go have a veteran walk out on the field because it's brought to you by the Home Depot or whatever else, you know, go, bite me. Like, honestly, you know, you're, you're using us for your financial gain and, and the public gets to think, oh, that's so nice. They care about the veterans. No, they don't. They care about money. So here's my one caveat to that, uh, because now I raise money for a, a veterans nonprofit. If six figures or whatever in that scenario goes to an organization that's doing something for veterans, well, then by all means, brag about it. By all means, put a video in your nationwide commercial of somebody coming home from Afghanistan and being greeted by their dog. As long as at the end of the commercial, you can say, and that's why we gave this much money to this organization, or that's why we did this. But if it's just like, you know, just actors, 
and it's just because you want to play on that, like, not cool. Like, I'm not okay with that. Brand association is fine, but there's got to be meaning behind it. All right. Well, look, we we could we could go on with this for hours. Yeah. Uh, you've got an ally. Just know that. Uh, I, I All can, right. Good. I've I enjoyed f- this conversation. Thank you. I got a full much. diatribe on on uh, using the military. It's, it's yeah probably be double the length of this podcast. But anyway, um, okay. Again, the book um, that you have out your memoirs uh, called Outside the Wire, New York Times bestseller. The podcast majority fifty four. I know you're working on another book, correct? Yeah, I am. Okay. When is it due out? Do you know? Uh, July of uh, next year. So, um, a year from now. So I'm, I'm, I got uh, three or four months of actual writing left to do. <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, yeah, I'll probably never write a book. Uh, just not, <laughs> not, 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 unless it's an audio book and I can talk my way through it. As you know, I'm a talker, but Jason, yeah, honestly, it, it's been, it's been great talking to you. It's so thank you so much for shedding so much light on PTSD, uh, what it's about and, and, you know, how it affected you and how it changed your life and, and how you're recovering from it, you know, and, and I'll give you the final thoughts really, you know, if, if uh, anybody who thinks they're suffering from PTSD, your words of advice for them. Uh, my advice is if you think you might need some help, you do. And, and it is worth it that um, it can feel overwhelming. The idea of going and doing that, there's so many reasons you can come up with and be very creative. And I was, as to why you either don't need it or you're not, you know, I do probably need it, but somebody in my position can't No, like you're missing the opportunity to just really live your life to a much greater degree and enjoy it and be present with your family and your friends. And it's just, it's really, really worth it. So go do it. Uh, go to Jason's website, Jason Kander, K-A-N-D-R.com. Uh, I hope to see you back on a ballot in the future only because we need Folks like veterans like you and I who can have level-headed conversations uh, with people who disagree and still come to an agreement together. We need people like that at the top of this country. So I hope to see you back on the ballot very soon. Uh, Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, Jason Campbell, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.